Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is October the 26th, uh, just more, little more than a week to you know what. Uh, and uh, treason is in the air. Maybe not quite in the air, but on your bookshelves. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed uh, Carlton Larson, a, pro a professor of law at the University of California, about his new book, Treason. Uh, Carlton was sort of ambivalent, I think, in his conclusion about whether or not Trump was a traitor. Uh, as a lawyer, perhaps that's uh, his nature, never quite clear on anything. Uh, my guest today, however, is much clearer, much less ambivalent. I'm guessing that uh, he's not a lawyer, or he may have a law degree, but he certainly left the law quite a long time ago. Uh, David Rothkopf is a very distinguished writer, used to be the editor of one of the country's leading foreign policy magazines, uh, podcaster, many other things, and of course an author. He has a new book out called Traitor. And he's very, uh, he's very clear about the relationship between Donald Trump and trees. And I'm quoting David here. He says, the president of the United States is a traitor. He is a liar. He is a fraud. He is a racist. He is a misogynist. He is incompetent. He is corrupt. He is unfit in almost every respect for the high office he holds. But what distinguishes him from every other bad leader the United States has had is that he has repeatedly, indisputably, and egregiously betrayed his country. David, how did you enjoy the play, in other words? Uh, <laughs> you, 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 you can't be more ambivalent. The guy's a traitor then, right? Trump. Well, he, he is. You know, I, I talk about um, the distinction between treason, which is a legal term defined in the Constitution, which requires, according to the courts, uh, that you not only aid and abet an enemy, but that we've declared war on that enemy. So we, we can't accuse Donald Trump of, of treason, um, but the definition of being a traitor is pretty straightforward. It's betraying your country. Um, and Donald Trump has betrayed the country from the moment he started running when he reached out to the Russians. He betrayed the country over the course of 272 separate interactions between his team and the Russians, the 40-odd meetings that took place between his team and the Russians, as chronicled by Mueller, as chronicled by uh, the Senate Bipartisan uh, Intelligence Committee. Um, uh, and it's not just that he reached out to them. It's not just that he embraced the aid of this enemy. It's not just that he um, had private interactions. He defended them. He's deferred to them. He's given them primacy um, over our own intelligence community and our FBI. And he's rewarded them repeatedly. He's actively pursued policies 
that are more in the interests of Russia than the United States. But he's also betrayed the country by stealing from the country. And he's betrayed the country by placing his own self-interest ahead of the interests of the American people in something like COVID. Uh, And we could go on. So I don't, you know, we can uh, discuss the legal intricacies of, of treason till the cows come home. The fact of the matter is, there's no discussion about whether or not Donald Trump has betrayed the country. David, you you talk about the Russians. We've had a couple of very distinguished investigative journalists on the show in the last uh, month. Tom Burgess, the author of Kleptopia, and Catherine Belton, who wrote Putin's People. I think both make compelling cases uh, that, that, that the Russians, that Putin's people, sprinkled some money on Trump as a kind of investment for betrayal. What's your reading of the concrete relationship between Putin and Trump? Well, I mean, Trump has had a relationship with the Russians that goes back to the late 80s. Trump has clearly sought to do business in Russia uh, even before, frankly, he probably should have been seeking to do it. Um, He certainly, when the Cold War ended, went in with both feet. Um, But as he started to run for president, we have to remember he didn't actually think he was going to win. He thought it was going to be kind of a marketing thing. And and one of the things that he wanted to get out of it was this Moscow-Trump Tower deal, which Michael Cohn writes about, others have written about. And then um, as he got into the campaign uh, and he saw that the Russians could provide him with aid, he, he, he embraced that. And then as he became president, um, he... Uh, sought to defend them and protect them and reward them and refer to Putin. And, you know, think think about it. Don't have to take my word for it. Don't have to take the word of some expert for it. Uh, just a few weeks ago, um, uh, it was reported in, in Bob Woodward's book, uh, that Dan Coates, Republican senator from Indiana, said the only way that he could you know, understand Trump's behavior is that he felt the Russians might must have something on him. This is Donald Trump's director of national intelligence, concluding that the Russians had, you know, influence over the president of the United States that he served. One of the things I find most remarkable about the time in which we live is that that story sort of came and went without a trace. Well, all stories seem to come and go without a trace. Doesn't matter what seems to happen. David, uh, your book is more than just um, an analysis of of the traitorous, the the treasonous qualities of Trump. Um, Your subtitle is A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. What exactly is American betrayal or what do you mean by it in the book? Well, I, I thought it was important because we tend, as you just indicated, to be numbed by outrages and abuses and tweets and offenses of one sort or another by Trump. And and as a result, everything gets muddled together and we just think, oh, Trump, this is Trumpian. Um, but some of the things that have happened under Trump are much more egregious, and they're 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 unlike anything we've gone through in history, and so I thought it would be useful to say, well, look, if this guy's betrayed the country, how does it compare to other people who've betrayed the country? How does it 
compare to people who've committed treason? How does it compare to people who've been accused of betrayal of other forms? And so I go back to the very, very first days of the country, uh, the revolutionary era, the period of Benedict Arnold, and then I go through uh, and forward to the uh, uh, treason trial of Aaron Burr, who tried to start his own separate country, or to the debate over whether or not to accuse or charge uh, the, 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 the people who are behind the Confederacy with uh, treason or, the, or the, the, the decision of a state, um, in this case, a state of Virginia, to declare John Brown guilty of treason. And John Brown was hung for treason when he tried to lead a, a slave uprising. Uh, or decisions in the 20th century, whether to um, uh, uh, you know, uh, prosecute people who supported the German cause in World War I or the German and Japanese cause in World War II or the uh, uh, Russian or Chinese cause during the Cold War. And, and to say, well, what, you know, how, does, how does what Trump did compare to each one of these things? How, though, does the country compare? You have this, um, what I thought was a very intriguing uh, point at the end of the book, suggesting that the problem isn't exactly Trump. Uh, I'm quoting you. He said, you, you, you write, the problem is not Trump, it's Trumpism. In other words, it's not just Trump who's who's the traitor. Perhaps, in a sense, the the country has become treasonous, at least to its original principles. Um, has this ever happened before in American history, where half or part of the country has simply lost faith in what it stands for? Perhaps during the Civil War. Well, the first hundred years of American history, um, uh, the country was divided over this issue. Of, of slavery and 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 from the very beginning of the country, uh, there was a sense that there were two systems within the country, and that's why, in order to get the South to join the uh, the Union, uh, initially we had to uh, promote the rights of the states to a level some people might have been uncomfortable with, or we came up with the three fifths clause in the Constitution, or uh, the Electoral College, some of the other things that were designed to um, uh, make the slave states feel a little more comfortable about joining the Union. Uh, and then, of course, there was division over the, this uh, uh, horrible institution uh, for, for 100 years, and, and that, of course, led to the Civil War. I think what we've got now is a situation where there are a large number of Americans who are aggrieved for one reason or another, and Trump is trying to tap into that. Now, particularly, he, like the Republican Party for the past 40 years, have focused on white male Americans who feel that they are economically in jeopardy because of either international trade, uh, immigration, uh, 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 the rise of women in the workplace, uh, you know, these are people who are sort of marginally associated with the old order, although not its primary beneficiaries, and they're angry and they're afraid. And Trump, just like Reagan, just like the Tea Party, uh, has has tapped into it. Now, of course, there's an irony here, which is um, I, Trump doesn't care about those people. You know, you've heard him on the campaign trail in the past week, you know, saying in Erie, Pennsylvania, I'm not coming back here. I didn't want to come back here. 
Um, but, uh, you know, they're using the anger of these people to get political power to advance the interests of super empowered people. But are these people, uh, David, uh, and part of the Republican Party indeed, could one suggest that they themselves are treasonous? There's a headline this morning in The Guardian that uh, the Republican Party supposedly resembles now the autocratic parties in in Hungary and Turkey. If that is indeed the case, there's a, a Swedish report out at the moment talking about the illiberalism index showing that the Republican Party is essentially no longer democratic. Could one argue that 30, 40, 45% of America has become treasonous, at least to its original principles? Well, again, I, I, I don't use the word treasonous, but do they betray the original principles of the United States? Sure, because I think fundamentally they're anti-democratic. On one level, they've tried to place the president above the law, and one of the founding principles of the country is that no individual is above the law. They've tried to uh, sort of co-opt the powers of the executive branch uh, to serve an individual above the law, even having the Department of Justice serve as the private attorney defending the president of the United States. The Senate has gotten involved in this and in sort of protecting and isolating the president from the rule of law. But also, of course, as we've seen with the judiciary, you have a minority in the country seeking to establish institutionally their, their power by forcing through uh, 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 judges who are ideologically extreme and unqualified for, for the role um, because they realize that as they lose power demographically, that's a way for them to, to cling to it. So are they anti-democratic? Are they would-be authoritarians or, or autocrats? I, I, you know, I, I can't come to any other conclusion. But isn't that very troubling, David? It's one thing for uh, Trump to be a traitor. It's quite another for 30, 35, 40% of Americans to be traitors, or at least to, to give up on the original principles. At what point does Brecht, Brecht's famous remark about the people and the system actually come into play in America? At what point do if Americans lose interest in democracy, then perhaps they're no longer traitors. They need to change the system. Maybe the majority of people want authoritarianism in America. They want well, a strong leader like Trump. There's no sign that that's the case. The majority of people in the United States want the democratic system to work. In fact, the majority of people in the United States embrace uh, a kind of uh, progressive um, uh, uh, worldview, whether it's um, for, uh, you know, uh, gun control or giving women the right to choose or uh, protecting the environment and so forth. And, and I think they want their system back. I think they want their system to work again. And I think what we need to do is, uh, and hopefully the coming election will do this, that, you know, that majority will speak and, and a new Congress with uh, Democratic control of the Senate will come in and Democrats will control the White House. And they can go back and say, look, no one is above the law. We have to hold these people accountable. And no, you can't abuse um, uh, 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 campaign finance rules the way that you have in the past. We, we need to, to, to make them fairer. Uh, and, you know, one by one, using proposals that Biden has enumerated or Elizabeth Warren has enumerated or others have enumerated, we need to get back to the work of 
fixing our democracy. And I think ultimately that's the, the strength of American democracy. It was designed to evolve. And we are at an inflection point where if we don't refine it and reform it, we may lose it. Uh, David, you have a wonderful quote in the book. Uh, all quotes from H.L. Mencken are wonderful, but this one is particularly wonderful, or at least uh, troublingly wonderful, wonderfully troubling. Uh, Mencken writes about democracy. He says, as democracy is perfected, the office of president represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. We move towards a lofty ideal. On some great and glorious day, the plain folk of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. Is that what's happened? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think you can argue it, but, you know, the United States... But that's the plain that. folk, David. Maybe, you know, you fancy folk like, like yourself in D.C., uh, in New York, and San Francisco like myself... But we just have to accept that uh, plain folk like morons. Well, I th look, I mean, you know, you can go back and look at, uh, you know, old movies from the 30s or you can, go, you know, go back and 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 uh, uh, watch a face in the crowd or something like that. And, you know, there's always been this sort of strain of populism in, in lots of countries that go and say, well, I'm just one of you folk. And 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 these demagogues take advantage of the circumstance. I also think the plain folk of the United States are actually pretty commonsensical, and they have seen the country through uh, a lot of, of 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 different tides over time, and and helped us to grow and evolve. And I have a lot of faith in them. Having said that, you know, you could have said the same thing about Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush. The Republican Party is the lowest common denominator party. That's the way they are selling themselves, and they have been for 40 years. And I think it's really important when you deal with a phenomenon like Trumpism to recognize that it's not about one person. Uh, it's about a way of selling an ideology to enough people to hold on to power, uh, even if that ideology in the end doesn't serve those people. I'm struck by the fact that you're, you seem to be putting... Bush, Reagan, and Trump in the same bucket. Is that fair? Is that what you're suggesting? Absolutely fair. I think that we, you know... If Both Bushes or, or the elder Bush or the younger Bush? Well, you know, I, I'll tell you, certainly the younger Bush, but, you know, the elder Bush, who gets a lot of credit for his foreign policy expertise, uh, was also, you know, part of the Reagan administration, one of the people that thought it was okay for the U.S. to help Saddam Hussein target Kurds with poison gas, um, uh, who felt that it was okay to cut corners for rich folks on Wall Street to uh, uh, produce the kinds of changes in the way that we regulate our economy that serve corporate interests over private interests, uh, and is part of this continuum, this continuum that begins with Reagan, or perhaps a little bit before, uh, which is moving the party farther right, making it more demagogic, making it more racist, uh, making it uh, less in the interests uh, of the, the, the people of the country as a whole. Are you suggesting then that Reagan and Bush were traitors also, or that they had a, 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 a traitorous quality to themselves? No, no, you know, again, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't overuse the term. I'm quite careful to use it in the, in the book. And I think one of the things that sets 
uh, Donald Trump apart is that he, unique among America's presidents, have betrayed the country. Do I think that the values of Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush uh, uh, were damaging values? Do I think it's damaging to the United States when they hear tapes of Reagan and Nixon making you know jokes about about African Americans that are derogatory? Do I think it's dangerous? the United States when a president like George W. Bush looks the other way when we um, use torture or we, we launch a, an illegal war that kills hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq? Of course I do. Um, I, I don't think we need to get into the discussion of, of whether these people are traitors or not. They were bad presidents who did a disservice to the United States, who have laid the foundation for a decline in American politics that has led us to the moment we're in right now. David, you mentioned a, a face in the crowd, the, the, uh, the Ilya Kazan film about uh, a sort of a proto-Trump, some people believe it ended, of course, in good Hollywood fashion, a happy ending. Uh, he was defeated and the girl found another man and, and everyone uh, came out of the movie feeling good about themselves. Uh, we have an election in a week. Some people will watch this perhaps uh, after the election. Um, where are we in the narrative? Uh, is there going to be a good Hollywood ending, a happy ending, like a face in the crowd? Is everything going to get back to normal? I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of struck with the fact that there seems to be two strains to your thinking. On the one hand, there's the book, which is pretty dramatic. Uh, in its accusation of, 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 of Trump being a traitor, being this unique figure in American history. On the other hand, you seem pretty relaxed at the moment. Where are you in terms of your optimism and pessimism about the short-term future of America and American democracy? Well, first of all, if I seem relaxed, it's probably because I seem exhausted. You know, I, I, we have been working hard for a long time. Uh, I have been working hard for a long time since before Trump was elected saying this man is dangerous. Um, when I was in foreign policy, we broke with 50 years of tradition and actually wrote an editorial saying this man poses a great threat. Uh, shortly after he was elected, I wrote talking about how the greatest threat the country faces is Donald Trump. And I felt for the course of the past five years that getting him out of office was essential. But you know, writing a book like Traitor is an act of optimism. It's not giving up. It's not saying um, that things can't get better. It's saying we must call out what is wrong because that is the only path towards getting back to what is right. And I think that it is quite possible. Uh, Joe Biden's margin in the polls holding up better than, than uh, Hillary Clinton's margins in the polls held up. And if the margin is wide enough, it will make it much harder for Trump and Putin and others GOP governors to cheat. Uh, and if the margin is wide enough, it may lead to a switch in control of the Senate, which I think is essential. If Joe Biden wins the election, whether we find out next week or we find out a month after, if the Democrats take control of the Senate, I expect we're going to enter a period of healing, of reform, of trying to fix the, what was broken under Trump, of policies that actually benefit Trump supporters more than uh, uh, Trump's policies did. And we're gonna continue in something else, which is the demographic transformation of the United States. And by 2043, according to the Census Bureau, the majority of people in the US 
will be people who we used to think of as minorities. The majority of people in the U.S. will be people of color, African-Americans, Latinos, Asians. And I think that's great. I think it's good for the United States. I think it makes us more competitive in a global environment. Uh, And I think ultimately it'll make us a more tolerant society. And, you know, you see a bunch of states right now that we used to think of as hard red states, Georgia, Texas, um, other states like that, North Carolina, where Joe Biden's got a shot. If if the Democrats start making inroads in those states, uh, demographic change can help ensure that that stays the way for, for some time to come. So I, I'm, I'm not complacent, but I'm hopeful. Well, you don't look happy, David, but I think you are. I got a, Finally, I got a smile out of you, even if you're exhausted. Everyone should read your book. It's defiant. It's outrageous, like David Rothkoff himself. Traitor. David, I know you're in New York at the moment, working very hard on the election. In addition to your important book, what else should people be reading in these very, very strange times? Well, I think you should read as much as you can. Kurt Anderson has a new book out called Evil Geniuses. Yeah, and he was being on the show a couple of weeks ago, too. So that's a good one. He's excellent. Um, I I was surprised at how much I liked and learned from Mary Trump's book um, about her uncle. I think she, you know, there's no guarantee that somebody like that emerges who's a good commentator and thoughtful commentator. She's She has certainly become one. And if you want to understand this longer transition um, uh, you might want to look at the, uh, the the biography of James Baker that Susan Glasser and Peter Baker just did, um, because it talks about how the establishment made the transition into being the scorched earth Republican Party. And I think that's very important to understand. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.